Christians are strange people. I can say that because I am one. A Christian, that is. And sometimes I'm a little strange. Christians have long been viewed as strange because we worship a crucified Savior. Christians worship a man who suffered and died a humiliating death. It's almost oxymoronic. Our Savior gives life through His death. Strangely, yes, we do glory in the cross. This evening, we have been considering and will continue to consider the glorious cross of Jesus Christ. And it's my prayer that the Lord will be pleased to give us eyes of faith to see in the death of Jesus Christ the payment of our enormous debt to God. Let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 27. Uh, We're going to be looking at verses 27 to 66. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find Matthew chapter 27, verse 27, I believe beginning on page 834. As you're turning there, let me just remind us of where we are in the Gospel of Matthew. Where are we in Matthew's Gospel? Well, quite simply, we're near the end. In fact, we're at the climax of Matthew's Gospel. And what makes this the climax is dependent upon what Matthew has stressed so far in his gospel. Over and over again, Matthew has endeavored to communicate to his readers that Jesus is the promised Messiah and King that the Old Testament pointed forward to. Matthew has gone to great lengths to show us who Jesus is from his birth to his baptism, from his amazing works to his amazing words. In every way, it is clear that Jesus is the promised Messiah and King that the Old Testament promised and pointed forward to. And if Jesus is that King, then according to the Old Testament promises and prophecies, He must die. Matthew, in Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 to 30, Jesus prepared for His death and prepared His disciples for His death. And while all of this was occurring, Judas... And the Jewish religious leaders had set in motion their plan and plot to deliver Jesus over to death. Jesus, as we've seen tonight, he doesn't resist his destiny. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 to 56, we see that Jesus, he willingly receives it. And from Matthew chapter 26, beginning there in verse 57 and stretching through to chapter 27, verse 26, Jesus, he he goes through trial after trial. Jesus undergoes trials under the scrutiny of the Jewish authorities and the Roman Roman authorities. And these trials, they reveal Jesus' innocence. Pilate, the Roman ruler, and the one in charge of Jesus' destiny and death, testifies to Jesus' innocence in the form of a question in verse 23. He asks, why? What evil has he done? And the answer, of course, is none. And Pilate knows it. Sadly, the crowd does not care about who is guilty and who is innocent. They call for Pilate to release a man named Barabbas and to crucify Jesus. An innocent man takes the place of a guilty man. This is what Jesus has done for all of his people. He became our substitute so that we might say and sing, In my place condemned he stood. With that, we turn to consider one And only one point from Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 to 66. And it's this. Jesus is the king who died for his people. Jesus is the king 
who died for his people. As we meditate on this, let's begin by reading verses 27 to 37. Follow along as I begin reading there in verse 27 of Matthew chapter 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put a charge, the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Most coronation services throughout history have been reverent services. Those present at such a ceremony would honor the monarch and publicly acknowledge his new title and position. The items given to the new monarch, such as a crown, a robe, or a scepter, were mere symbols of what was occurring. The symbols given to or or placed upon the monarch were symbolic of handing over the kingdom to him as he received the authority to rule and to reign. From what we read in these verses about this coronation ceremony, it's clear that this is far, far from a reverent affair. Jesus is dragged to a place where a whole battalion of soldiers, potentially somewhere between 200 and 600 men, enjoy ridiculing one condemned man. All of this occurs after Jesus has been flogged, and these soldiers clearly are clearly deliberate in their attempt to mimic a coronation ceremony. When the crown of thorns comes to rest upon Jesus' head, he is crowned with a sign of the curse. When Adam sinned in the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, God told him that because of his sin, the ground would now bring forth thorns and thistles. In fact, throughout the scriptures, Thorns are portrayed as a sign of pain and judgment. The soldiers do not stop. They pretend to honor him only before they spit on him, hit him, and lead him out to be crucified. Why does Matthew give us all of this detail? 19th century Baptist theologian J.L. Reynolds answered that question this way, writing, When Christ uttered in the judgment hall of Pilate the remarkable words, I am a king, he pronounced a sentiment fraught with unspeakable dignity, and power. His enemies might deride his pretensions and express their mockery of his claim by presenting him with a crown of thorns, a reed, and a purple robe, and nailing him to a cross. But in the eyes of unfallen intelligences, he was a king. A higher power presided over that derisive ceremony and converted it into a real coronation. That crown of thorns was indeed the diadem of empire. That purple robe was the badge of royalty, and that fragile reed was the symbol of unbounded power, and that cross the throne of dominion which shall never end. Even in this mock coronation ceremony, the soldiers are beginning to fulfill Psalm chapter 22, verses 6 and 7, and Isaiah 
53, verse 3. Not only does this Old Testament, uh, not only does this fulfill Old Testament prophecy, but it fulfills the prophecy that Jesus made about himself to his disciples in Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. There Jesus said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus is king. But not the king that the Jews or the Gentiles expected. He was a better king. He was a king who stood in the place of his people, who represented them, who took the curse upon his own head, and who bore all of their shame. If you've had the privilege of reading the Bible for a while, then something should strike you as missing from this passage. The details of Jesus' crucifixion. Did you notice that Matthew doesn't give any of the gory details of Jesus' crucifixion? In fact, you can go through and read all of the Gospels, the Gospel accounts of Jesus' crucifixion, and you wouldn't get many details. And there are several reasons for this. For one, the the authors are mostly focused on Jesus' death itself. For another, the word cross and the very concept of crucifixion in the first century was not a subject that you would openly discuss So horrific was this form of death that people would hide their eyes from its sight. This punishment was so fierce and cruel that Roman citizens were usually exempt from enduring it. Matthew's focus is not so much on the how, but on the who and the why of Jesus' death. It's significant to note that Jesus was brought outside the city of Jerusalem to Golgotha. Matthew wanted his readers to know that Jesus was being executed at a place marked by death. He also wants to keep our attention on the fulfillment of prophecies, specifically those contained in Psalm 22. Remember that in verse 35, that we're told that they divided his garments among them by casting lots? Well, listen to what Psalm 22 verses 17 and 18 say. There the psalmist says, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. In verses 37 to 44 of this chapter, Matthew records a number of people mocking Jesus. We see Pilate and the soldiers mockery through Jesus' official charge that he claimed to be king, king of the Jews. That sign proclaimed the truth. The two criminals next to Jesus and those who passed by joined in the mockery, again fulfilling the promise of Psalm 22, verses 2 to 7, and Psalm 109, verse 25, where we read, I am the object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Then the chief priests, they join in mocking God's one true high priest, who is offering the most precious sacrifice on behalf of his people, himself. If Jesus were to save himself, then he could save no one. No, he had to remain on the cross. Up to this point, we've only heard the voices of those who rejected and ridiculed Jesus. In verses 45 to 50, we finally hear the voice of the king. Take a look there at Matthew 27, beginning there in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was a darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about... The ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. 
And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. He yielded up his spirit. Jesus has been derided, denied, and deserted. He was forsaken by everyone, including the Father. Matthew tells us that a supernatural darkness sets in around noon and lifts somewhere around three in the afternoon. This supernatural darkness brings to mind the ninth plague in Egypt. Just before the Lord set Israel free from slavery, darkness set in over the land. And Moses tells us that it was a darkness that could be felt. The tenth and final plague required that the people of Israel sacrifice a Passover lamb. The blood of the Passover lamb would shield them from the coming wrath of God. It's the week of Passover in Jerusalem in this passage. A darkness has set in as Jesus, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed. The plague of God's wrath had come upon Jesus. Jesus was not shielded from the wrath of God, but endured the wrath of God. And that's why he utters in a loud voice the cry of desolation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here Jesus is quoting from Psalm 22, verse 1. But those gathered around don't understand why he's making this cry. They think he's calling Elijah, but he's not. He's calling out to the one whom he has known and loved for all eternity. Something is going on between the relationship of Jesus and God the Father. Something profound, something unique, something mysterious, and something never to be repeated again. This forsakenness was not the absence of the Father's presence in Jesus' earthly life, but the positive presence of the wrath of God the Father being poured out on His Son for sin. For those three hours of darkness, Jesus endured the hell that you and I deserve for our sin. He endured the eternal wrath of God the Father in those three hours for all of those who would ever turn from their sins and place their faith in Him. Jesus bore all of the wrath that we deserve for our sin. Because Jesus was forsaken by God the Father, we don't have to be. Friend, if you're here this evening and you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, then let me encourage you to consider Jesus' death yet again. Friend, God is angry at you for your sin. He is angry at you and me, for we have all sinned. He is angry that we have mocked His kingship. He is perfectly holy, and He has made us to reflect His holiness. And yet, we've all sinned against God. We've all failed to keep His commandments. And in doing so, we've reflected a lie about God, that He's not holy. God is just. His commands have been broken, and He must punish those who have broken His commands. And apart from Jesus, we're all in danger of facing His eternal and just wrath, of being forever forsaken by Him. In love, God the Father sent His Son, Jesus, to live the life that we ought to have lived, but haven't. And to die the death that we deserve. But three days later, three days after Jesus' death, God raised Jesus from the grave, proving to us all that He satisfied the just requirements of God's law and propitiated, that is, satisfied God's wrath for sin. We deserve to be forsaken by God. We deserve to endure hell for all eternity for our sin. Friend, stop forsaking God and start forsaking sin.
Repent, abandon your sin and place your faith in Jesus. Believe that he died for you, bearing your God-forsakenness. Confess with the centurion of verse 54 here in Matthew's gospel that Jesus truly was the Son of God. And if you want to know more about what it means that Jesus bore God's wrath for you or what it means to believe in and follow Jesus, I'd love to talk with you after the service. There's nothing I'd rather talk with you about than this good news that Jesus died for sinners and was raised from the grave for sinners. The incredible proof that this forsakenness came to an end and that Jesus' death satisfied God against repenting sinners is found there in verse 51. Do you see verse 51? And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This was a supernatural act of God. Because of man's sin, God had to erect barriers to keep men from coming too close to his holy presence. In the temple, there were barriers erected to protect the people from God and from him lashing out in his holy anger. Only after the high priest offered the appropriate sacrifice was he able to pass through the curtain and enter into the holy place on the day of atonement. But here, Matthew tells us that the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from heaven to earth. The high priest, Jesus, offered the final sacrifice. The way to God is now open to all through the curtain, through the curtain of Jesus' flesh. Jesus was crowned. He was crucified. And his earthly life came to a close when he yielded up his spirit, as verse 50 makes clear. In verses 55 to 66, we learn that his dead body was claimed by Joseph of Arimathea and closed in a tomb. Joseph, you see there, he treated the body of Jesus as a dead body. Not only by wrapping Jesus' body in a linen cloth, but by putting his body in the place where dead bodies went in that day and age, a tomb. Matthew also notes that a few of Jesus' disciples were there watching his burial. Verse 61, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there, were there sitting opposite the tomb. Jesus' disciples and followers knew that Jesus was dead. Jesus' opponents knew that Jesus was dead. The Roman rulers knew that Jesus was dead. Jesus' disciples, they saw his body wrapped in cloth and laid in a tomb. They even saw it sealed with a large boulder so that in the words of one children's Bible, no one could get in or out. The stone that sealed Jesus' tomb would have been so massive that several grown men would have had to roll it out of place if it were to be moved. Surprisingly, it's not until the next day, Saturday, that the Jewish authorities ask Pilate to place a guard at the tomb. This speaks to the authenticity of Matthew's account, as well as underscoring the fact that Jesus really had died. Even if a man who had been beaten and crucified survived, he could not move that stone, nor could he remove that wax seal that's mentioned there in verse 66, nor could he overpower the guards. Jesus really was dead. Even the Jewish religious leaders knew it, their concern that he uh, would not, was not that he would rise, but that his body would be stolen. And then disciples would put forward a man who looked and dressed like him, a person who was a fraud. No, Jesus died. Jesus was crucified. He was dead. He was buried. And this is where we should conclude. 
even though it's not where the story concludes. We began this meditation by reflecting on the fact that Christians are strange people. We worship a crucified Messiah and King. In our songs, readings, and in this meditation, we have seen King Jesus prepare for his death, submit to his destiny, testify to his authority, and die for his people. J.C. Ryle once said, Let us ever glory in the cross of Christ. Let us regard it as the source of all of our hopes and the foundation of all of our peace. Ignorance and unbelief may see nothing in the sufferings of Calvary but the cruel martyrdom of an innocent person. Faith will look far deeper. Faith will see in the death of Jesus the payment of man's enormous debt to God and the complete salvation of all who believe. Indeed, may we ever glory in the cross and resurrection of our Savior and King. He died for His people. He died for us. May we live for Him. Let's pray together.